You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Freaky. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of Mend, we start digging in our own backyards. Beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction, to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the backs of the landers, the activists, the families, the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come thus far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us. Pull up a chair, pour a glass, and listen. This week we speak with Iris, a woman born, raised, and now raising a family in the hills of Humboldt County. When Iris was a child, her father was busted by the infamous camp campaign against marijuana cultivation, and given the option of one year of jail time or losing his land. He chose to keep his land and spent the better part of a year in prison. She recounts the details of growing up in the marijuana culture as a child, the advantages and disadvantages of herself and those around her. Knowing the safe house in the neighborhood, the one with no marijuana on the property, where the kids could flee to when camp came flying. Learning all of the local plants and trees, and not having a phone for many years. She appreciates the openness and unconditional love of her parents, but also recognizes the sad fate of too many of her peers whom, as she says, feel very big, very early. Iris acknowledges the benefits of marijuana cultivation in her earlier years, but tells us the big why she no longer participates. It's not the threat of jail. That part wasn't scary. She tells us how, as an adult, just two plants helped get her family set, what her community is doing to integrate the outsiders coming in, and poses the very important question of why Humboldt has alarmingly high numbers of childhood trauma and neglect. This week we recognize not only the beauty of rural living, but the darker sides of growing up in an outlaw community. Perhaps it is only through looking at these shadows that we can hope to understand how to come back into the light. Well, we have the pleasure today of sitting down with, um, with Iris. Thank you for being here with us. And um, so we've been asking people to put, um, put themselves in context of this world. So could you just tell us a little bit about your, your role in the marijuana culture of Humboldt County? And that could be past, present, anything that you feel is kind of germane to this topic? Yeah, currently I don't have a role in the marijuana culture. But yeah, I grew up, my dad grew, moved here in like 1979 um, to, as part of the Back to the Land movement and started growing marijuana probably in like 1980 and all the way through, you know, most of my until he died, basically. He pretty much grew most of the time. I grew for a period of time. Like, I, I was involved in it from a teenager on to my early 20s. And then, yeah, I stopped growing. Like, I took a really long break, but and then did it for a little while to help support my family. And I think I stopped maybe four and a half years ago or something like that, five years ago. Did your family move up specifically to 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 grow, or were there bigger no. bigger reasons? He moved up to get out of the city mm-hmm. and to live kind of the backwoods lifestyle and live on the land, and that was what was going on in terms of economy where he was mm-hmm. in Southern Humboldt. So, yeah, I don't think it was specifically to grow, but he certainly started right away. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, I never asked him that direct question, and he's no longer with us, so I don't know. Well, that's the story we're getting from uh, the, some of the back to the landers that they, one of the things was that they were able to afford the land up here because 
of what had happened to it with the timber mm-hmm. industry was kind of ravaged. Right. And so, so they were able, cheaper. it was a lot cheaper, and then they learned fairly early on that they could grow a couple, of, you know, put a couple of extra plants out because they were growing for themselves and they could put a couple of extra plants out and yeah. pay the bills. My dad definitely had no money. Um, you know, he was like living in Haight-Ashbury doing acid and, you know, doing like anti-war protests and going, yeah, he participated in like the civil rights movement and then borrowed money from his ex-girlfriend who actually had a job and uh, <laughs> bought his place up here. So, yeah, he, he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Okay. And then I think he grew weed to pay her back and kept going from there. Okay. And then he met yeah. your mom up here? Oh, yeah. His, his, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, I, uh, he met my mom in Mexico, I think. Yeah. Well, so were, you were born up here, born and raised, or you I, came up here a little? So, yeah, I was, I was born, started being born in the woods, like, an hour and probably two hours at that point from a hospital and in those days like midwives were pretty like persecuted and it was illegal to do a home birth and somehow or another the hospital found out that this birth was going on while it was happening and kind of freaked out and um basically was trying to bust the midwives for doing this home birth, and the midwives found this out. I'm not sure exactly how they found it out, through some channel, through a friend, or and freaked out that they were going to get caught. And so they didn't actually tell my parents all this. They just said, your mom needs to go to the hospital, as if she was having complications or something. But instead of taking her to the nearest hospital, they drove her all the way to Fort Bragg, because they didn't want the doctors to catch them for the home birth so they took her pretty far away and yeah it was a pretty traumatic experience so, wow. yeah I ended up being born c-section at the uh, um, hospital even though it was probably unnecessary it turned out in the end but yeah that's the whole there's a lot of I don't know I don't know where we're <laughs> where we're going with all this but <laughs> there's like about one million like crazy stories that we could go down uh-huh. <laughs> so. right well I just love the multiple layers of like outlaw there you know it's like living up in the hills growing the illegal plant to sustain yourself and you know your very birth itself is kind of this, yeah. like rogue um, it was pretty crazy <laughs> man they took me to the hospital and then the, the doctors were all like pissed because obviously I've been started, you know, she'd been laboring at home and they were very demeaning and like gave my mom these drugs without telling her Mm. and she didn't want them. And then I was born and they took me away somewhere else in the hospital. And my dad was like frantically searching for me in the hospital. It was like a whole, whole different world at that point in terms of, yeah, support. Um, As someone who's been born and raised here, did you have you left and returned, or have you lived here your whole life then? Um, yeah, I, I left. I yeah, I left. I went um, on foreign exchange in high school, and then I lived um, in Siskiyou County for a year, and then I worked um, all over California and Southern Oregon, um, and I also lived in Alaska for quite a few years and worked there, and I lived in Central America, and yeah, I came back here, I moved back here when I was, got pregnant with my first child, um, because the place where I lived in Alaska, they had stopped doing births at the hospital, and I didn't want to go hang out in Anchorage for a home birth for months. Yeah, that's sort of how I ended up back here. So what was your childhood like? Oh, out here. At that time, you know, we lived in a log cabin. We had no phone until I was like eight. And it was like 20 miles of dirt road. And there were very few other kids around. There was, you know, there was a small period like in the early to mid 80s where there was kind of a more functioning community and preschool and a little like school out there, not just like a little private school out there. And there was this group of kids at that point, but probably by the time I was like nine, there was only maybe five other kids in the area, you know, and otherwise it was an hour drive to town. 
My parents split up when I was about a year and a half, and I always lived half the time in Southern Humboldt with my dad. And I did kind of a weird, like, six months on, six months off thing. And my mom moved all over Humboldt and Siskiyou County and Trinity County. So, uh, I didn't go to school hardly at all. I went a month here, a month there. My parents were like, you know, try it. And then if you don't like it after a month, you could stop. And so I would try it and I would hate it pretty much every year. And then because I went back and forth and because my mom moved every three months to nine months to a new location, I tried a lot of schools. I went to like 17 schools and uh, I probably ended up with like four years total of actual schooling. And when I wasn't in school, I was kind of doing whatever I wanted. I learned to read pretty early and I, not early, but like at seven or something. So I read a lot and I read all the time and I didn't really do math or science or I never learned to write in cursive and yeah, things like that. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't have very much schooling at all. Um, And I went on foreign exchange in, when I was 16, so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I went to a school there for six months, and then got out early, but yeah, it was, you know, my, my dad's place was, you know, my parents were pretty poor when I was, like, a younger child, and my mom was always super poor, my dad, after, like, maybe, like, 92, 93, he started really actually making money from marijuana, and had enough money to, like, have it be more comfortable, um, when I was seven or eight, uh, he, our place got busted by camp and that was pretty crazy. And you were there at the time? I was, had just been taken to a preschool or some kind of school. I, can't, I mean, I can't remember if it was a school or if it was a neighbor's house. I, I had just gone to something to play with kids and... My teenage sister, sister was there, and her boyfriend, and when my dad came back from dropping me off, he came up our driveway, and men with machine guns jumped out of the, behind the trees on the driveway and kind of assaulted him, and then he was taken into custody. Um, they used our place as sort of a headquarters to bust the whole neighborhood, and so, because we had a big flat area where the helicopters could land and take off, and so... My sister heard him coming, and she'd been kind of drilled for it, because this is the era when camp was pretty hardcore, and, you know, we had learned that to not talk about what our parents did, and to lie, and, you know, it was also the era of dare, so if you did go to school, that's what you were encountering at school. Um, Anyway, when the helicopters came, she and her boyfriend took off running through the woods, and it was, like, really terrifying for her. They managed to get away and get to a neighbor's house that was kind of a predetermined safe house where there was no marijuana on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to this day, like, she's got no desire to be part of it because right. of how scary that all was. And he ended up, my dad ended up being given the choice of you can either lose your land or you can go to jail for a year. I think it was just a year. Um, and he chose to go to jail, and he ended up um, down south in, in a prison for about, I think he got out after like 10 months for good behavior. Um, yeah. So, and during that period, you know, because I, obviously he couldn't come pick me up, um, I ended up kind of getting handed around and then going off with a friend um, for a few weeks until my mom could be contacted to get me. And I don't know why it took so long. I mean, she probably didn't even have a phone, because it was like that kind of, time where people don't have phones right mm-hmm. and and she lived rurally too so no landline no yeah how old were you during this i think oh. it was eight but there was it was very common for when camp came we would all go to our one neighbor's house where there was no marijuana and we would hang out there and watch the helicopters and the little kids would pretend to shoot the helicopters down which was like strongly discouraged by the parents because, like, the helicopters, like, you know, with toy guns, but it had been known that they had, like, shot back when people were doing that sort of thing before, so, but that's the sort of, like, atmosphere that was going on, so we'd either go there or we would go to, um, a place of, like, up high on a mountain, go and climb up a rock and 
and watch and see where the helicopters were landing and be listening. Was it scary or was it so ordinary that it didn't really register that way? Um, that part wasn't scary. What was scary and harder was, um, was lying and cops or teachers asking what your parents do for a living and knowing that you can't say and knowing that if you do say something really bad is going to happen and you're a little kid so you're not sure what that thing is but you know that it's really bad and like like it's a lot of responsibility on your child to have them be protecting really your identity to some degree so mm-hmm. and how that old, was scary how old were you when that was first put to you that you had to I mean, basically, as soon as I can remember, I don't, I don't know how old I was. Like, I don't ever remember not having that experience, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, as soon as I was, as soon as you leave that neighborhood and go into any public zone, so probably, like, five, I would guess, you're starting to have that kind of awareness of, like, oh, this isn't normal, and not everybody's doing this, and it's not okay. So, yeah, that's, I mean, conversely... I don't know, this is like where I'm supposed to say this, but like, it's why I stopped growing to some degree is that, you know, not all of our immediate family members, my partner's family members would be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And I was never going to ask my kids to lie. Mm-hmm. And so basically, as soon as they got to an age where they would have any awareness of this is the thing that you'd have to ask them about to lie about, I stopped doing it because I wasn't going to ask them to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of other reasons, too, why I stopped, but that was, like, why I stopped probably as soon as I did. I might have done it in a couple more years, mm-hmm. if, you know, I didn't feel that. Do you remember the conversation? Was there ever, like, a conversation around it, like, you can't talk about it even though this is an okay thing, or was it just, you just knew, just don't? Like, did you, was there it's a, just like, like, an this ethical actual, conversation? That's like a modern parenting technique. <laughs> you know, like, that didn't happen. You think about your childhood. I mean, <laughs> you know, I just, it's just like, it just it wasn't like that. Right. You know? Okay. It was, you know, like it was totally normalized and my dad smoked in front of me all the time and, you know, they, I went out and was around the plants and like, you know, it was so normalized that it wasn't bad to me, um, but it was bad to me that I had to hide it and it was, and I knew that you could get in trouble for it, but that didn't make me think it was that bad. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's like, they just didn't do that. Right, there wasn't that much yeah. thinking involved. Uh, no, that's like the last like 10 years. I, yeah, I would we say got that's like kind it. of a modern, yeah, where we actually sit and work it through and yeah. speak to yeah, children like, as, <laughs> as fellow logical, yeah, rational yeah, human beings. We have a lot of tools now, that maybe, maybe too many, but... <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm struck by, and this, this, I'm formulating this question in my head, and it just sounds very clinical, but how would you, I mean, so how would you characterize your childhood? Did it feel like a, a joyful existence? I mean, it sounds like there was quite a bit of turbulence due um, to various factors, but... I mean, it was really good in lots of ways, you know? It was really different, and, um... Like, I might characterize it really differently than somebody from the outside looking in, you know? Yeah, I mean, I was, like, naked all the time until I was probably 10 or even a little older. I played outside all the time. and But it was, it was very isolated. Like, there was no internet. We had no TV. We had no phone until I was, like, 9. Uh, I listened to the local radio station and the music that my parents chose to put on. I had one really close friend who I interacted with almost every day when I was at my dad's house. You know, so it was pretty like insular and like protected and I felt very safe and happy, you know, in in a lot of ways. But I was also like now as an adult, I have no idea what people are talking about. When they're talking about pop culture, from their childhood, or mm. TV shows, or even a lot of things that happened on the news. I just have no idea. That wasn't my reality. I didn't even know about yeah. it. Like, you know, and like I got into high school and started being exposed to popular music was like, oh, <laughs> this is what this is. Like, I didn't even know about it, you know, partly. So, yeah, but I think overall it was pretty good. Like, my parent, my mom and dad fought really a lot. So whenever they switched me, they would fight. Mm. And my mom was super super poor and 
uh, you know, we like had we ate at churches and like she was on welfare and we got a lot of free food and we went dumpster diving and were homeless and like hitchhiked and and she didn't have any connection after she left your father to the the marijuana culture. She or? tried a couple times to grow weed and she was freaking terrible at it and like she just didn't have you know she had no business sense at all hmm. and you know even though growing weed might not seem like it it's like you have to have business sense because there's so many aspects to it it's like first you have to be a good enough farmer to grow it mm-hmm. then you have to like have a good enough business sense to like have your market and your outlets and you have to be able to do your math and you have to process it and like get it to the you know exact right temperature and dryness and then package it and then get it somewhere and then not have your fingerprints on it and then you know, like, <laughs> she just couldn't do that. She, I remember the one time I recall her growing weed, she, like, put it on a little raft in a pond because we didn't have enough money to, like, buy fencing or something. So it was, like, floating on this raft in a pond, like, ten plants or something. And the wood rats swam out there and ate it. <laughs> it's like, you are not meant to do this, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of awesome. But, yeah, she, she didn't do it. My dad, I think, helped her out a little bit here and there financially, but not, like, that much. But, yeah. So sometimes when you stay with your mom, you were, ho- you were homeless? Yeah. yeah. And how, how was that with your dad? I mean, giving you up for six months knowing, well, we'll see how I don't it goes. Know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Those are all, like, interesting questions, and both my parents are gone, so, like, I Mm. I have no idea how it was for them, you know? It's like you don't think about those things till later when you're a parent, and you're like, whoa, what would that be to give up my kid? Right. Are Are there pieces of your childhood that you feel, like, are are worth holding on to that you have wanted to, as a mother, pass on to your children? Like, things that you recall as being rich and valuable and... (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, some of the, the openness that they had, I could tell either of my parents anything, and I knew that they were gonna love me, and they weren't gonna get mad at me. So that's a huge thing, as a mom, like I, and I don't think I'm as good at it as they were, you know, like I think... I'm, like, way more rigid and way more interested in, like, structure than they were. And with that comes judgment. And because they were such hippies, because their life was so unstructured, there was this sort of thing that happened of, like, I could tell them whatever I wanted and I knew they were going to love me and, you know, they weren't going to get mad at me. Like, I remember the first time I did mushrooms or acid and I came home and I told my dad, and he was like, I'm so proud of you, honey. And he, like, gave me a big hug. And, you know, and so I continued to tell him things. If he had gotten pissed at me, I probably never would have told him again. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I hope I can do that. I haven't had to deal with that yet because my kids are younger. But I found out later that he went off on the adult who gave me those drugs. Uh-huh. And I found that out several years later. But I thought that was pretty cool. That he so he was proud of you just for coming home and being honest with him, not necessarily I, who knows, enhancing you know? your, your I mean, he was a major psychedelic freak, you know, so mm-hmm. he was probably proud of me for doing psychedelics just because <laughs> of that. Because he was, like, super into psychedelics and, you know, came from that era of the 60s. And, like, that was, like, a huge part of his sort of developing his self or whatnot. But, yeah, I thought it was cool that he didn't share that with me. Mm-hmm. You know, that took a lot of self-control. Mm. And I had no inkling that he was pissed. So that was cool. And yeah, the the being in nature, um, and my mom was like super into herbs and plants, and my dad was really into trees. Like, I learned like all the name of every tree and every plant, and Mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And like, I know that stuff, and I share that with my kids, and it gives you sort of a deeper connection to your place. And so, yeah, those are things that I, you know, and I feel like. Yeah, just growing up in a rural environment in general, it's like kind of, it's really idyllic for kids to have that experience. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's come up quite a few times, just the having that connection to the land and yeah. affecting how you are with the land. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a moment and just say, I don't think that that 
is inherent in living rurally because I I consider myself to have grown up kind of rurally. Yeah. But we were still very much plug you know like you know the only thing I could really do before I was able to drive was like go take my dog and go hike for four hours like that was my like get out of the house and you know get away from mom and dad situation right but there wasn't like a mall to go to but but intellectually like and emotion all those other ways like we were very much hooked up to the mainstream culture you know like right we had our our tv shows and our you know, and our media and all of that stuff. Yeah. So I think that it, it does represent a unique way of yeah, living. Yeah, totally. Um, no, I think that's definitely true. And yeah, there's tons of people. I mean, there's thousands of a, uh, rural pot farmers who live like they're in full-on suburbia. Yeah. In Humboldt County. I mean, like, full-on, you know, <laughs> suburbia. Well, and I think With, that's like, no the- connection to the land other than that they're growing weed on the land. Yeah. But there's no, like... Right. A lot of people don't even have a garden, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah. So I think, yeah, that's, and I think that's shifted a lot because at the time I was born and that generation of people, it was people who were coming out of a radicalized era of the 60s and were like, oh, this is what we want and we want to go back to the land. We want to experience homesteading. And now it's like I'm moving to Humboldt County because I want to get rich growing weed mm-hmm. and I can have my totally comfortable, you know, urban lifestyle in the woods because I'm making a lot of money. So it's, it's just so different than that time period, you know. And yeah, I'm sure there's a handful of people who are moving here because they want to live in the woods, but probably not that many. <laughs> no. I haven't met them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, because when I first brought this podcast up to we had interviewed Laura, mm-hmm. who was talking about how out in that section of Southern Humboldt, you know, the the rednecks and the hippies all got along because, um, you know, it's just kind of this overall outlaw mentality and looking out for your neighbor. And I remember like telling, out where I'm from now? No, out no. where she was living. Okay. And, uh, and I remember talking about that to you and you were like, well, that's, that's new. Yeah. That's recent. So, which I thought was... Yeah, I mean, I think it is recent. It's like, I think that happened when the timber industry collapsed. And those people who formerly were timber industry or ranchers realized, oh, I don't have to be a hippie to grow pot, and I can make money. And so those people started growing pot, and then the hippies are growing pot, and then all of a sudden they have this thing in common. And they're suddenly more alike than they are different, and their kids are going to school together, and they're not actually ranching or logging anymore. That's just sort of their family tradition, but they're all growing weed. And I, I don't know, I feel like that was sort of a gradual shift. And I mean, even where I am now, it really shifted over, I feel like maybe in not that long ago. What is this, like maybe like 17 years ago, 20 years ago, like where it really started to be just normal. And it's still some of it <laughs> where I live now. It's definitely still like I'm from, I'm directly descended from the first uh-huh. white guy who came here and killed the Indians. Therefore, like, I am from here, and, you know, this is sort of my value system, and, mm-hmm. you know, but it is so much less, and there's so much crossover, and there's so few people that all of the kids interact together, and so that mm-hmm. kind of just goes away. Right. Like, it's completely gone with our kids' generation, and, you know, I think our, our age people have an awareness that it still is there a little bit, but it's, with our kids, it's, like, not... And that's because, like, that whole culture is gone, you know? I mean, there's no, like, fishing's collapsed almost entirely, and logging's almost totally done, and, like, you know. But do you think a new, like, will there be a new kind of rivalry between the, you know, maybe the people that have been here and then the people coming up just to grow big time? I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems like humans have to have a rivalry at all, all times. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely, like, the big players, and then there's, like, the indoor growers versus the outdoor growers, and there's, you know, the people whose lights are polluting the night because mm-hmm. they're not covering up their depth grows, and then there's people who aren't, and they're just growing in the sun, and so there's, yeah, there's constantly that. Um, I feel like in the community where I live, uh, we're doing a lot of work to really integrate all these people who are flooding in. In the last five years, so many people have moved to that rural community because 
weed has gotten more legalized and it's gotten more publicized. Like, oh, I can go to Humboldt and make money. And so we're really trying to, like, preserve our community by really integrating those newcomers and really advertising what makes this community special and really kind of trying to educate people who are coming in and being like, hey, these are the things that make this community run. This, all these people volunteering for all these different nonprofits are like what make this community a good place to live and they're why you like it here. And so like we're inviting those people to join and to like volunteer and to participate in our community. And that, I, you know, it's awesome. like a slow process, but I feel like that sort of has to happen or the whole way of life that people are experiencing here will completely disappear because you've got people that are moving here that don't give a damn about the place at all. That's a a great tactic, I think. Yeah. Where's the land coming from? There's just always land. It's a really good time to sell. It's very expensive. Yeah. So people, a lot of people are selling because that are old timers that don't grow because it's like, I can make millions if I sell Mm -hmm. right now. Right. And then Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because it seems, and I, I love that approach of, you know, like the reaching out and inviting people who would, you know, like you say, may not really give a damn about the yeah. sacredness of the land or the community. They just here to make money. But, um, cause it seems like the normal operating procedure when there's someone who we have a totally philosophical divide, you yeah. know, is to go on the defensive or, mm-hmm. or the offensive, you know, and call them an asshole, <laughs> or, right. you know, like get on the, like you said, like with the division thing. Yeah. So I think that whole thing of reaching your hand across the table and saying, welcome, but here's the values that yeah. you are, you are stepping into, you are, you're yeah. new to this and we, we're going to school you a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, I recommend people doing doing it. And I mean, where we live, we made like a, you know, there's like a guide for trimmers too. Like, this is how you take care of yourself and this is how you take care of our place and the community. And like, because it's, you know, all through Humboldt County, it's become such an issue that suddenly there's like 100 to 500 people mm-hmm. hanging out with no place to go to the bathroom, no place to eat, no place to shower waiting for work and so that's sort of been part of that is like let's like educate those people so that you know they're not creating this really negative impact on and you know there's also simultaneously to like protect people that don't have a clue about where they are and that there isn't any help if they get in trouble and that they are in the middle of nowhere and that they need to have sort of more situational awareness of the surroundings because of various things that have happened around yeah I mean you guys know about all the various like crimes that have occurred over the last. It seems like they've been occurring more over the last five years, or maybe they're just more publicized. With the trimmers coming in. With or? trimmers and yeah, just with the industry in general, and I think part of that like increase in crime is part of the influx of new people. Mm-hmm. You get people coming from the city or from like sort of. A culture that is a little more violent and a little more prone to like, all right, like I'm here to make money and now I'm high on drugs and I've got access to guns and you're not giving me what I want. Like, I'm just going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, that's always been somewhat of a part of Humboldt. It seems way more so now than it was. And I think that's just sort of what we were talking about, of like, you're losing those values of, like, why mm-hmm. people came here originally, and, you know, if we want to keep it like that, we have to really... You gotta be proactive. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Something. We were just talking with this guy about, you know, who uh, is part of the Growers Association, and he mm-hmm. was saying a lot of people just are kind of wanting to cross their fingers and, and hope for the best, or we had said that, and he yeah. was like, yeah, that's stupid. Right. You know, you got to be educated. You got to be proactive. You got to be a yeah. part of this. Yeah. To keep this community going or Yeah. I've always wondered if um because it seems like like you said that you know the people coming up who don't share the same values, you know, they've got guns and they're high on, you know, not not weed. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like right. you know, they've got access, and I always just wonder if you you know if you go the route of taking decriminalizing and taking marijuana out of the black market, um, is that going to? Do you think you'll see a decrease? Because I, I always feel like because of its association to all the other 
classified substances. Mm-hmm. That's because that's when the scary part seems to happen. I mean, like you get yeah. someone who's just, you know, way too high. Like, well, go take a nap. It's fine. Right. You know, they're not going to get violent on yeah. you. Yeah, totally. Um, whereas it seems like it's the big, huge, you know, money yeah. at stake and dogs and guns. And by the way. They've got easy access to methamphetamine or, you right. know, tons of blow because they are associated in this black market. Do you feel like going towards a more legalized... Yeah. No, I'm super pro-legalization. and I was kind of disappointed, actually, by the whole county when it didn't pass in our county when they tried to legalize marijuana a few years ago and it didn't pass because people are worried about profit. And so voted against it. And I guess for me, I feel super strongly that it should be 100% legal and that the people who really are suffering from it being illegal are generally poor and minority and those are the people that are in jail because the people that are here are primarily white. They're very protected by the laws in this county that have been around for a while in terms of medical and, you know, they're not usually the ones going to jail. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, predominantly it's just not a threat. But I think, yeah, I think it'll definitely be a decrease in crime. I'm kind of excited to see all this influx of money, too, from the new taxes, because we're the third poorest county on the books in California, and actually, you know, we're right up there with one of the wealthiest counties in terms of real income, and, like, maybe that will shift, like, our mental health system, which totally sucks, and our roads, and you know, our schools, which are suffering and are, like, way near the bottom, and, like, so I'm excited about legalization and, like, all the money that it will bring in and the actual taxing of it, and even though for some smaller growers it might be a bummer because you might be getting taxed right out of business, like, I think ultimately, like, that money has to be coming into the county to some level because, like, our infrastructure is just so terrible. And just to backtrack in terms of what you were asking about, um, my childhood and stuff, it was like really clear about 1990 that it changed where I grew up. And from like 1980 to 1990, it was really nice and it was really friendly and it was small and it was back to the landers and there was a community center and there was a little school and it was like a nice vibe and you could walk wherever you wanted and you weren't concerned about your safety and there wasn't really much crime and about 1990 way more people started moving there people started getting bigger and there started being a lot more hard drug use and a lot more weapons um, because of having this like cash flow coming in, people could buy weapons and they could buy hard drugs and it was totally unregulated. The police didn't come out there. If somebody got killed, cops didn't come out. You brought the body to town, they dealt with it out there. Oh, wow. You it, Just like, that's how it was. And okay. you suddenly couldn't like walk on other people's property without being afraid that they were going to use a machine gun to shoot you. And yeah, it shifted. The community center closed down. The schools closed down. It totally changed. So what what was it about 1990 that... I just think it got more known. Just Like it was like Humboldt County, that's where you go to make money. And then, you know, 96, we had the whole 215 pass and medical legalization. And then it just got off the hook, you know. And that's like, I was 16 at that point. I started working in the industry when I was like 14. Um hauling soil, uphill, you know, getting you paid. Your dad? Oh, you were getting paid, I didn't, so you... I didn't work for my dad. No, I worked for other people. Okay. And That's like your paid high school job. Yeah, and like getting paid like 300 bucks a night to guard a 2,000 plant scene, you know, with no gun because I refused to carry a gun. Even but it was, I was offered, offered a gun yeah. to carry. You know, I'm a 16-year-old girl. I'm alone in the woods. Guarding 2,000 plants, what am I going to do? I don't know. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when something actually happened, it turned out to be nothing. But I hid because I was like, I'm not going to get shot for this. So, you know, but I was going to take the 300 bucks. So. <laughs> I was pretty happy about that part. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I started doing that. You know, I ran uh, some indoor grows when I was, like, 17. 
uh, I, or maybe I was, I can't remember. I might've been older. I think I was 19 when I did that. And I think when I was 17, 18, I had my own scenes off. Like, you know, at that point it was pretty gorilla growing style. So I like grew from 17, 18. And what, whose property? Just, uh, partners. Like I, you know, I, I knew everybody cause I grew up there. So I made partners and Okay. And uh, worked with them. Um, and yeah, some people. I, yeah, I didn't mean who, like a specific name. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah. Give us names. Give like, us names. Was, I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, how the you, gorilla grows, like, where do you find a spot? Yeah, and then sometimes on BLM, um, but mostly it was on private land. And then, yeah, I, I kind of stopped doing it about 19, I think. I did it for a couple of years, and then. I would come back yearly and um, trim for a couple months, and then I would support myself um, for the rest of the year by doing that. So. Was there ever a point where you kind of wished for a more "quote unquote" normal existence? Like, <laughs> look out at you know, peer out into the suburban American landscape and wish that you had something a little bit more sedate. And <laughs> uh, I think I didn't wish for it as much with my dad as with my mom. I actually moved out and lived with him um, primarily when I was 14. Stopped living with my mom. And it was, you know, it was because, like, he had money. And she didn't. I had my own room at his house. Mm. We had, you know, I could do other stuff. I went to, like, gymnastics classes and did other things. You know, like, and that was what it was about. It wasn't about that he was growing weed or not growing weed. It was, like... This parent can support me. And he had a stable home. You know, she moved constantly. So, yeah. I would say I felt that more with her. And she wasn't really a part of the weed culture. Well, it's, I was going to say, because that's interesting. I mean, one thing that we have asked people, you know, like, what are the specific advantages? And it's interesting for you having these two parallel lives almost. Where here's the mm-hmm. one parent who's not profiting right. from this world. And that's what it looks like for them to move through right. their life and here's the other parent who has managed to build up security mm-hmm. and you know some amount of affluence and um, comfort. Yeah. yeah and I mean as a as an adult when I went back to it when I was like 26 or something it was very helpful to me and yeah I was the primary grower and we were super broke and I chose to stay home with my baby and uh, breastfeed her and growing weed like hardly any weed at all like the first year I grew two plants that were enormous and paid our land payments for the entire year Um, so you know that was kind of what sold me on it was we suddenly had this huge debt and we literally had like a bag of change that we were buying food with and I was like this is crazy like like I'm not gonna do this so I put in two plants and you know there was like 11 or 12 pounds from those two plants and that paid the payments the whole way through and from there like we increased the amount we grew never too significant I think like 50 plants was like the most we were growing and that was totally awesome it really really gave us an amazing freedom like I got to stay home with both my kids and breastfeed both of them I got to take them with me to water it was so small for this county that there was no stress or fear and I had a you know medical card to be able to do it so I felt very safe and not worried about going to jail and honestly like I worked like two hours a week made about five times more money than I make now (laughs) and (laughs) was with my kids all the time and you know I worked for like a month and a half every single day till midnight in the fall and maybe a month and a half set up in the spring but otherwise it was literally two hours a week and I did tons of volunteer work and other cool stuff and that's actually the thing when I start when I think about that I get really mad because in my community there are thousands of young single men without children Mm. who do zero to volunteer in the community and they do zero to help their neighbors or, and they are making a lot of money, you know, 500000 to a million dollars a year. And they say it's because they have no time. 
So that's the part that gets me. I'm just like, no. Like, I did this. Maybe you're growing too much, so maybe you really feel like you have no time. But the thing, the beauty about growing marijuana to me is that you have that freedom to do creative things, to support your community, to be with your family, and to grow food if you want to grow food. You know, it allowed us to build a house and buy property. Mm -hmm. Like, it gives you that freedom. And I think, you know, where the issue comes in is with the greed of like, oh, I could make this much, but I could make, you know... 50 times more if I just expand, 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 and then suddenly all you can do is do that, and mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, I think that's probably true in any industry, it's just that with the weed culture, it's so easy to get in and start doing it, and there's no credential checking, there's no like, oh, you know, I'm going to hire you, and you know, it's like if you've got the wherewithal to get a place or a piece of property or you can land on somebody's place and they'll let you do it, then, like, you're in. And once you're in, it's like you can just go up, you know, and maybe you're going to get busted and maybe something will happen and you'll, you'll fall, but those are sort of the smaller percentage of people. But it's kind of a weird industry like that. The only other industry that I've seen like that is the, the fishing industry in Alaska where you've got particularly where the opportunities are so huge for teens and you see teenage boys, especially because they're drawn to the culture of it. You know, you're outside, you're working hard, there's access to like booze and drugs and big trucks and guns and like ATVs. It's like a dream for a boy. And all of a sudden you've got a boy who's 15, he's maybe 17, and he has so much money and he can do whatever the hell he wants. And probably, He's not going to do very well. He's no. going to, like, die in a car wreck or overdose or stay there and do nothing else for his entire life and have a really, like, insular narrow window. And there's a few that don't and then get out and do other stuff. But I think if you never leave, which is what I saw a lot of my cohorts doing, dropping out of school, staying, and never leaving, then your view of the world is so narrow and particularly if your parents weren't very good, then you're just lost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was also a huge percentage of kids at my high school that died. You know, they had trucks early. They had, you know, the roads are crazy. There's no cops. Like, and there's access to, it's culturally acceptable to do drugs and get alcohol early. So you're doing it. And, but it's also simultaneously not allowed. So it's like even more exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That's one thing that Laura was talking about was that one of the disadvantages was these, particularly the young young boy, the young men, the boys, having access to all of this cash at a young age. And then, yeah. Yeah, like being from the, the rural hills and going down to the city to try and sell or whatever to, you know, kind of with this, with this wrong idea of their persona or, who, you know, mm -hmm. their place in the world. Right. No, you feel very big. Well very early <laughs> well yeah. and I think and the money topic has come up too just how you know you have witnessed oh you know there there seems to be kind of these two camps where there's people who had a, a sense of feeling really privileged to be mm -hmm. able to grow this plant and like you say have their time and their freedom and be able to live how they wanted to take care of their kids and not have right. to worry about some bullshit nine-to-five job you know where well, the kids are in daycare all the time or whatever and so they felt very, you know, almost like obligated to give back because right. they knew that they had been given this gift in this, yeah. this line of work, this plant. And then there seems like this other camp where people just maybe don't have that kind of understanding. And so when they did get these huge sums of money, yeah. it didn't necessarily go to, I mean, they don't have much to show for it. You know, they've had a really good time. Right. <laughs> you know, they've, they've got a lot of stamps in their passport, which is great. But as far as like, you know, did you give back to your community? Did you do something? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you could draw the, you know, like, is that, you know, the people who've come up more recently, you know, who don't have maybe that sense of connection and mm -hmm. gratitude for that kind of work. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a combination. I think, I think that kids who grow up in it and get it handed to them on a platter and never have to work a real job, there's often going to be that. Yeah. Like the no, no knowledge that this is like not how it is that like 
Most teenagers have to freaking grovel to get their first job. It's hard. They get their first job, they get paid, like, nothing. And they're, like, stoked if they can, like, buy themselves a pair of tennis shoes at the end of the month and, like, take their girlfriend to the movie. Like, you know, that's the reality. And I think if you just grow up in it, it's, like, no big deal. Like, I was totally spoiled. You know, my 14, I was getting 20 bucks an hour. You know, it's like... <laughs> and I... Tax-free. Yeah. You're just... You know, and I never had to try to get work. I never had to fill out a resume. It's like, what? You're willing to work? All right, he's twenty bucks an hour. Like, so as an adult, uh, going into uh, you know being an adult and uh, getting out of the whole realm of growing, how has that been to get like a, um, an actual job or try and? Yeah, I mean the first times. Like, do you mean like when I first got a real job or? Like, yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess how do you break out of the? Yeah. I'm just growing up, growing pot, and yeah. now I'm trying to be legit in society. I don't know. I guess, like, yeah, I had kind of, like, a big tragedy occur in my life, and I had to leave. And I started working for minimum wage there out of boredom, you know. <laughs> so I, like, started working as a waitress, and I don't even remember how I got that job. I don't know. I just must have just gone in there and asked for it. I think the fact that I was literate helped a lot. Um, I, you know, I mean, I'm not even joking. Like, a lot of these kids that I grew up with, the boys, especially, like, if you smoke early, like, and you shouldn't, you know, like, maybe if you're predisposed to dyslexia, mm -hmm. or, like, you have a hard time reading, or you never went to school, or now you're smoking weed and you're 10, a lot of those boys started yeah. at 10. The girls started a little later, but the boys, on average, started at 10. That's so and young. they couldn't have filled out a resume at you know, I mean, hopefully now they can, you know, they've had a lot more years, but like, uh, lots, you know, several of my brothers, you know, like they would have had a hard time filling out a resume. Um, just like filling out like basic stuff, like without spelling errors. And, you know, I think that helped me a lot. Like I could bullshit and I was a good reader and writer. And so that made it so I could get into that and um and then I I knew a lot of people and so when I I worked in Humboldt doing kind of like fuels reduction work and you know I knew the people so I just got hired because I knew them and they were like okay yeah, I trust you and then when I went out of the county and like worked in other states I was able to call those people right. and be like can you recommend me and that was kind of how I got into it. Because people <laughs> do not want to work out of the weed industry. Wow. Because it's too damn hard to work out of the weed industry. Like, it's like really one in like a hundred that's like, oh yeah, I want to go work hard for like way less. Like, that sounds good. Do you, you know, so it's this sort of, that's, yeah, it's been easier than it should have been. <laughs> do you foresee that changing with legalization, though? And, you know, as more and more... Yeah, know, I mean, I think... flooded and the People price are going to move away, probably, you know? I think that people who live rurally now and end up not being able to um, live off of, you know, for whatever reason. If their business model fails of growing marijuana in the legal culture, for a lot of people it'll be a basic thing of they didn't do the paperwork. They don't know how to deal with the system. And there's a lot of growers out there that that's the situation. They've been growing for, like, 20 years or, you know, more, and they're not about to start doing paperwork. Mm -hmm. And they're going to hold on for a little while, but pretty soon they're going to start getting busted. And then, you know, what are they going to do? They're not going to live out there unless they go on some kind of social services and are getting them subsidized because there's not that enough jobs. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I, I am definitely somewhat concerned about, like, economic collapse of uh, rural Humboldt County. I think it's very possible. Mm. But I think that the people that have paid off their land will probably stay, for the most part, and figure out a way to make it work, you know. But, yeah, people who have gone into big debt for this and are just now getting in the door, like, hopefully they can figure it out, but... Yeah, it seems really, really possible that there's going to be, like, a big outflux of people <laughs> from mm -hmm. here. And it's really going to get, it's going to boil down to, like, people who really want to be here. And I, I do see some positive sides of that, of, like, 
the people that are left are going to be the people that want to be here. And that has, you know, that has some positive sides for the community. Yeah, but what about the people that part of the reason they want to be here is because of the community, but the community is changing or it just seems too, like, such a huge obstacle to, to maintain it or to keep it. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know. That, that sounds like giving up. Don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't know. Because well, my question, I mean, because you're, you know, you said yourself, you know, you've chosen to work in a profession that pays drastically less mm-hmm. than, you know, the current weed profession and... You know, so, and, and you're choosing to raise your family here. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what is your great hope for for the, the county, the community, for the, the world that you're, you know, want to raise your family in? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, you can a take a little. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, I'm going to revise this one. Yeah. Make it smaller. Um, my big hope. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, as a parent, my hope is that my kids have, like, every opportunity that I can give them and that the community can give them, and I hope that growing up rural, rurally has enough perks that the things they're missing out on they can get later because you do miss out on things growing up like that. You know, they also have a really special childhood in a lot of ways and have a really safe environment to live in, and they know everyone and have um, a really supportive community of adults that I think you don't necessarily get in town mm-hmm. where they don't have just us, you know, they probably have 50 adults that know them and love them and are responsible and that they can go to for help or advice. And so that part's really special to me. Um, and I guess I would hope for my community in particular, I feel like where I live is really amazing, and it's really amazing because of the elders who live there, who came there with the idea that they want to make an awesome place to live and really live on the land, and they are incredibly involved in the community, and they're getting old, and they're not going to be around that much longer. Um, and I guess my big hope for where I live and is that the people that are our age and our generation will be stepping up and really learning from these people who have made this place so awesome and continuing to carry that on. And that tradition really is just something that's disappearing across the country and not just here. It's sort of a cultural thing of, like, volunteerism is disappearing, like, Fire departments across the nation are, like, struggling because there's, in this culture of this younger generation, they don't, that's just not part of it, the give back to your community. It's very much, like, me-oriented and, mm-hmm. you know, how can I, you know, do my personal best to make it myself as successful as I can be? And it doesn't mean that they're, like, trying to hurt other people. There's just not that culture of, like, how can I make my community as good as it can be? Like, what can I do to, like, help others? So I'm just hoping that that, we can keep that tradition alive and that we can financially survive um, if there is, like, a real economic collapse from marijuana um, getting legalized. But I, I think that Humboldt County has a great chance of, you know, thriving and continuing to do well financially. I think there'll just be there'll be some people who won't, but I I mean I would predict that overall we're gonna do fine. It's like we're so well known for producing marijuana, and we're so ahead of the curve in terms of like infrastructure, and companies and you know LLCs and like all these you know we're way ahead of like all sorts of places on that, and we have a name, you know, which is a lot. You know, mm-hmm. we probably have the most known name in the world (laughs) so I I don't know I think it will I think that we'll probably be fine financially is there anything that feels left unsaid yeah like I have a lot of negative thoughts about the marijuana industry and positive you know but things that come to my mind for whatever reason this county that's dominated by marijuana culture like we have the highest Um, adverse childhood experience scores, you know, I think we're like 
third or second in the state, which means we have we have one of the largest number of like foster children. Um, we have a lot of kids who have experienced trauma, who have experienced neglect, who have experienced drug abuse in the, in utero. A lot of children that don't have parents. We have a lot of children whose parents are incarcerated. It's like, why is that? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it really deserves, like, it needs to be looked at. Like, what are we doing wrong here? Because why are we, like, so off the charts? It's like, sure, there's lots of us who think this is awesome. Like, we can grow weed and we can, like, breastfeed our kids and we can, like, be home and we can garden and we can you know, homeschool our children, and, like, that sounds so cool, but it totally depends on psychologically how you're doing as a human and, like, how highly, high, how high-functioning you are. If you're, like, a little bit teetering or you're a little bit not all the way high-functioning and you're, like, in a culture where you can just do drugs and mm-hmm. nobody's going to even think less of you or, you know, be weird to you for doing them, I'm... And probably they're going to give them to you for free for a while before they start charging you. Like, there's lots of ways to get free drugs here. And, I mean, I can't tell you how many drugs I was offered as a teenager that I turned down. And I just think, like, you know, that's something that really is important. Because we're all raising kids and we're trying to do a better job than our parents did. And, like, you know, how come one person survived? And I come from a family of eight kids and there's maybe four of us are doing pretty good hmm. yeah four out of eight yeah <laughs> so it's not a passing grade that's not that great yeah you know like yeah like some of us are doing really bad <laughs> and it's really related to early childhood trauma and early drug use like that's mm. like and like lack of parental supervision you know probably it's the fact is in there pretty big too but, yeah, I think the one other thing I would say about my parents that they did, that my dad in particular did, I, I did, I should say, not my mom, but, is he educated me about drugs. And he said, he laid it out very clearly in a way that many parents are afraid to do for their kids. Of like, you know, if you're going to do acid, this is like the things you got to look out for, and this is what it could be cut with, and this is where you should get it from. And this is the environment you need to be in to be safe. And, like, these, you know, cocaine is addictive, methamphetamines is addictive. Like, never try white powders and, like, always know your source. Like, stuff like that. That, like, we're scared as parents to tell our kids those things. But I feel like that, for me, was really, really helpful. Because I I was offered every one of those things. And I never did any, like, addictive drug in my life. The Guru. My first teacher was my mother. Nature decrees we all get a front window view of this primal form of tutelage. Watch, listen, upload the little wide-eyed, ever-waking computer whirring in your duckling-headed brain and take notes like mad. In scribbles, sound bites, and primal wails, calling upon whatever language you now possess to codify the wisdom being handed down to you and assimilate it into a code, a system, a method for living. Suckle at the body of one who knows and fill our mouths and bellies with this first taste of knowledge, information dispensed at the cellular level. I know there are things my body learned whilst first scribbling down notation in the classroom cave of the womb. From her, my body learned its long and dexterous fingers, the chameleon shade of my eyes, one moment blue, another breath turned green, flickering, shifting with the title of blood and pulse inside, or just an arbitrary but consistent trick of light. My propensity toward a soft pudding bowl belly, long, strong legs that would first kick and crawl, then run, and eventually look fantastic in a short skirt and stockings ending in a delicate show of ankle and graceless primordial toes and overlong feet. As her full trained voice would hit my developing ears and synapses, 
She would convey the language and the meter of pitch and harmony, brute sound strung through the perfectly tuned instrument residing in her lungs and throat, a vehicle honed over time and much arduous work. In her lullaby lessons, she would etch into my body the strains of a delicacy years in the making, a daily matinee played out in the confines of our living room. Filling the air around me and entering my bones by rote, this daily meal granted me with no knowledge of the painstaking preparations that came before. No recollections would be handed down of the years of sweat and failure and straining and vexation that were preamble to this gorgeous, expertly executed anthem of sleep. In her, and then eventually along beside her, I would taste only the acute flavor of perfection. And though she practiced her art form daily, studiously, arduous and hell-bent on the happy duty before her, the entire body swaying, crafting this holy and kinetic prayer, I knew nothing of her journey, of what it had cost her in years, hours, and crushing blows to the ego to arrive here. I knew only of her song, put forth daily to the slumbering strains of the universe, whether it was open to receive her headstrong, latent glory of an offering or no. Thank you once again for tuning in to Mend Life at the Seams. We really hope you've enjoyed taking in this last hour as much as we did creating it. If you would like to know more about the two ladies behind the mic here, go and check us out at mendpodcast.com. Or if you've taken a wee liking to the artful verbiage we throw out at the end of each episode, you can find more writing and musings and story at our individual websites. Go to anniefricke.com, that's A-N-N-E-F-R-I-C-K-E, for poems, performances, and a link to buy her beautiful book of poetry, Caesarus, Whispers Behind This Life. For more snippets and diatribes from Amy, skip on over to the blog section of backpocketjuju.com. As always, thanks for tuning in, showing up, and adding to the conversation. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.